Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. First of all, my apologies, because there has been quite some time elapsed since our last episode. And that's mainly down to logistics. I find myself away filming for long periods of time, and so do our guests on the show. The caliber of the people that we have on here are typically away for long periods at a time filming, and we have to try and catch them in between those film shoots to get them on the show. And that can be challenging in itself. So... I do want to assure you that the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast isn't going anywhere and I'm going to do my best to make sure that we have a new episode for you every month. So please stay tuned, stay subscribed and look forward to those new guests coming very, very soon. You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, episode 19. Today, I'm speaking with DP, producer, and owner of Pioneer Studios, Ben Hamilton. Ben started Pioneer Studios back in 2007. It is an award-winning Denver-based production company that works to support non-profits, public lands, television studios, and scientific institutions in their efforts to communicate critical conservation messages to audiences around the world. Pioneer Studios is a small family of creatives that bring big production value to every project. They work from concept through distribution to ensure that every video achieves maximum impact. Pioneer's clients include the BBC, the National Geographic Channel, the Smithsonian Channel, the Oceanic Society, and the Travel Channel, to name a few. Good morning, Ben. Thanks so much for taking the time out to be on the podcast this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, Ben, let's start off by just getting a bit of background on you. How did you break into wildlife filmmaking? What inspired you to get into this industry? You know, my story, um, I I was always into filming um, since I was a little kid. Um, Ended up getting some internships in high school, went off to film school at University of Texas, and during my summers, I was looking for a way to hike in Alaska. I was just like obsessed with backpacking. And uh, I ended up pitching a project uh, to do a documentary um, about this organization in Southeast Alaska that helped preserve one of the first citizen initiated wilderness areas after the Wilderness Act passed. And so I spent all four of my summers during college up living in Alaska. And then after Alaska, Um, I mean, after I graduated, then I ended up moving up there and working um, full time for basically from May till, you know, through the through September, October, the full summer season doing wilderness media work uh, with this organization that was helping monitor wilderness areas. And so as I was like kind of in that world and doing that, I had a number of contacts that were very fortunate. I had a guy that was a couple years older than me that played ultimate Frisbee with me, Skip Hobby. he was shooting for National Geographic. I also had a professor who was really good friends with a production coordinator, a production manager at National Geographic, Ann Tarrant. And so 
after I left Alaska, I ended up moving to DC, ended up getting, um, over the course of a period of time, which took me, you know, to network, but, um, us getting on a shoot for national geographic for untamed Americas, and then ended up working, um, for them, um, as a production coordinator for a little bit. And so that was kind of my transition, but honestly, I mean, throughout film school, throughout high school, um, even when I graduated, I didn't, I don't think I knew I was going to be have a specialty at natural history or even have that as part of my arsenal. That was never kind of a, a specific intent. Um, but I loved being outdoors. I loved hiking. I loved Alaska. I loved being in these remote places. And I found myself time and time again shooting in those places to the point where I was like, oh, wow, like there's actually this world that exists of people who do that. Um, so, yeah, that, that was that was kind of my start was kind of linking that Alaska chapter of my life with some folks I knew in DC and kind of bridging that gap. So you, by the time you filmed for Untamed Americas, um, you had kind of perfected your art by that point. I mean, were you kind of happy with where you were as a cameraman um, or, you know, was it still a kind of a learning process for you? Oh, I mean, I don't think I'm happy as a cameraman now, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, absolutely not was, you know, I, I, I was on that shoot as a PA, AC, you know, and so like it wasn't it wasn't like I was hired as a DP, you know, out of nowhere at 21 years old or something, you know, um, I, I think at the time, like I was I was very thorough with my planning. I was very like um, disciplined in the field. I tried to be a good team player. I had spent a lot of field time in Alaska being in very remote areas in very, you know, close quarters with people, you know, I, I had just gotten back when I did Untamed Americas from um, almost three months in wilderness areas on a sailboat with two other guys. And so I think there's like, it's so much of this industry is like, there's so much to learn on the camera department. And, you know, every time I talk to guys who are super seasoned, I, I my mind is blown even more of, of the techniques and kind of shortcuts that they use to get, especially some natural history behavior. But, um, so much of this job is also just like field etiquette and just understanding how to um, deal with the conditions. You know, that, that shoot I did from Tainted Americas, we were in a cave um, in West Texas. And when we'd come up out of the cave, you know, it's 110 degrees and you're working 12 to 14 hour days. And so um, I think, you know, to answer your question, no, I was definitely not, um, uh, you know, satisfied as a cameraman. I'm still not satisfied today. I think it's something that I constantly work on and hopefully we'll continue to get better at. But Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think we all do. Anyone behind a camera would, would agree with that. I think, you know, there's always so much to learn. But, you know, looking at your work, uh, your showreel and, and the various videos you have on your pioneerstudios.org website, your work is stunning. I mean, it's really beautiful, beautiful work. And I know you've worked with various different cameras, um, but it looks as if throughout everything you've done, regardless of the gear that you're using, you're still getting exceptional images. Um, you know, how have you found that kind of transition working through starting with lower end gear? I know you're, uh, have an Ari Amira now. Um, tell us just a little bit about kind of transitioning through gear as, as time has gone by. Yeah, totally. I mean, I started, my first camera ever was a, a Canon. What is it? What was it? An X? Um, I'm trying to remember it was the first interchangeable lens Canon one, you know, this is before DSLRs, XL1S. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I started with that small sensor camera and then, um, ended up buying, a, um, 
a Sony kind of like handy cam um, camera that I shot with in Alaska those four years in the summer. And then um, when the DSLR kind of revolution happened, I shot on a 7D for years. Um, and I made the jump from a 7D to a C300. And that was like life changing because there was neutral density filters, there was, you know, extended record times, there was peaking, there was, you know, all of these things that um, were so incredible. And, you know, that camera, like I worked that camera on productions basically nonstop for three years. Um, and it was an amazing camera. And, um, you know, it's, it's so tough. Like the camera technology specifically, like, there's, as I've grown in my cameras, and then obviously I went from a C300 to an Area Mira, which is a extremely robust, amazing image quality camera. But, you know, each camera has its has its perks. And like at the Area Mira level, I now miss the lightness and mobility of the C300 a lot. Right. Um, yep. I can't just like grab it, you know, at my waist and like get really stylized, quick handheld shots, you know. Um, at the same time, I can't roll with a very steady on the shoulder rig, you know, with most of the other cameras, like I can on the Amira and I can't shoot, you know, incredibly robust codec, um, amazing highlight roll off footage like I can on the Amira, uh, you know, on any of those other cameras. And so, um, it's, it's a constant process. I think the, the biggest thing that I always asked myself was what, um, you know, what camera will make me money and be the best tool for the time. Um, and I, and I wrestled with the area mirror in that sense. Um, I love the camera. I could not be happier with the image quality, but it's an extremely expensive camera system, you know? And, um, I think with anyone getting into this business and getting into gear, my first advice is never to tell them to buy stuff. Um, you know, if they can have whatever the cheapest thing that they can work out on, you know, I think that's a huge thing, but to just jump into a 15 or $20,000 camera package and think you're going to get work because of it is, um, it's a challenging proposition, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's something we touch upon a lot with this uh, podcast because so many of the view uh, that the listeners are, uh, are, you know, that's one of the biggest questions is gear and um, you know, trying to get the best image quality. But I think we can all agree that technology's got to a place now where really you know we're seeing stunning images from from everything from these very small cameras to the larger cameras and it really is as i would say horses for courses it's it's picking something that's going to work for you and your budget and at the end of the day totally. the budget is the most important thing you, you you can't bankrupt yourself uh you, you know before you've got work coming in so the um, only camera that i would honestly suggest anybody even consider that's like very low end is the gh5 right now i mean that that camera I just shot with it for a month and like the Kodak, especially after the new firmware just came out is so robust. You know, you've got 4k 60 internal, it shoots to SD cards, which are readily available. The battery goes for three hours, you know, like there's so many things about that camera that like five or six years ago would have been like the dream camera. And, you know, you still have the workarounds with audio and, uh, and with neutral density. But I have to say that that camera is like, um, for the price, it, it, it is amazing what they've packed into that thing. And, you know, you look at the difference between my Amira and that price-wise, it's astounding. Um, but, you know, there's some things about the Amira that when I am in my specific situations, like having, you know, four channels of audio that can go directly into the camera and be able, being able to, you know, 
great, uh, absolutely stunning image in post. It's like, you know, there's some things that on higher productions come in, but uh, you, you know as well as I do. Yeah, it's 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 a tough thing in that, in that sense. Well, and I think there's something to be said for um, starting out with a uh, smaller gear that you have to kind of work harder to get all these elements together. I think it's such a good learning curve because if you have something like a GH5 or a DSLR in general and you have to work around the audio and maybe put a mixer on there and have an external rig to put uh, the, the mic on and all of these things that we have to worry about, putting the filters on the front of the lens, it's a good learning curve because it teaches you one so much more about how those things work because you have to think more about them. But two, when you start moving up to gear that has it all internally, it's so much easier. And then you can really focus more on, you know, what you're filming and, and not have to worry about all the the peripherals, you know. And and that's really the moral of the story is that like your gear should not be getting in the way, you know, and and Every shoot, there's some piece of gear that I have that frustrates me and gets in the way, you know, uh, and it's 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 something that is constantly a battle. But you should be asking yourself about the story constantly, you know, as a shooter. Just what is the story? What is the story? How do I build tension? How do I make this scene better? You know, and and that's something that like, you know, you, you watch any of these the people that you've interviewed on um on your podcast, as well as, you know, some of the other great DPs in the industry, like, you know, the great people who tell stories, like they're visual storytellers first, you know, the technology is just kind of a, a means for getting the, the best, the best, you know, way to tell that. But, um, hopefully, you know, if you get good enough, you're just using it, you're not even really thinking about it anymore. And you're really just able to, you know, see through the camera and tell the story you want to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's always amazing when that, that mix of great story and great cinematography come together, then you have an excellent product. But, um, you know, great story is there foremost at, at the front of it. And if your gear is, you know, not high-end gear, you can still tell a fantastic story with it. So um, staying on the gear uh, side of things for a little while, you, you've done, um, I, I think one of the things here also with the gear is, you know, having high-end cameras, you also need those smaller cameras as well for, for smaller situations, things like GoPros or DSLRs for underwater shooting. And I know you've done a lot of underwater uh, work with um, Salmon and various other things. Tell us a little bit about the gear you use for that. I'm assuming you're not taking the Amira underwater. No, no. And I, I, I just wrapped a shoot where I was actually looking at doing that, but I, I decided against it. And, you know, the I, I mentioned that I just shot on the GH5. Um, in the last two years, um, my kind of little DSLR cameras that I brought in the field have ranged from the GH5, uh, the A7S2. Um, I've shot on the 1DX Mark II uh, Canon. And then basically GoPro Hero 4 and 5s, um, I don't ever go on a shoot without the GoPros, um, and they're just so nice for being able to get that moving perspective, often in a, in a medium that can be kind of hard to get motion shots with. You know, if you can attach cameras to things that are moving, it really um, kind of puts you in the place. Um, but like this last shoot, uh, my underwater housing had a GH5, and it was fantastic. Like, it, I really I really was satisfied with it. And um it's so small and versatile. I also have a cable cam system that I use on a lot of shoots. And so that that cable cam system can only hold a small DSLR mirrorless camera um, on its gimbal. And so, you know, those A7S GH5 range cameras have been invaluable to me because 
Um, I just can't throw the Amir on there. <laughs> and even if I could, I wouldn't want to, you know, have to rig a line that could hold the Amir on a gimbal that would just weigh like a hundred pounds. So. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when you're doing all this traveling, you spent a lot of time in Alaska. Um, I know in the, the meaning of wild, uh, your documentary, you know, you're out there for a couple of months traveling around five wilderness areas. What kind of uh, gear are you taking in terms of quantity? You know, is that are you hauling around, you know, 10 bags or have you compacted it down to just a, a couple of cases? You know, our company has really focused from the beginning on being extremely small teams. Um, you know, I would like to see us do bigger team stuff sometimes, but often the stories that we're telling are following people into remote areas, scientists with wildlife stories, um, stuff where like if you have more than two or three people, A, the wildlife will run away and not be there, but B, you just can't keep up with the scientist or the animals that you need to follow. And so we really tried to stay thin. I mean, on our gear and on the meaning of wild, for example, I basically had a C300, I had two or three lenses with me and batteries and a tripod. Um, and that was it. And maybe a GoPro. And so I had, I've got one of those, you know, uh, low pro expedition packs. Um, and that was basically my kit. Plus when I did the you know, the extremely remote stuff, I would have an extra case that was a Pelican that had just an absurd amount of batteries in it, you know, and media. Um, but typically we really try to go light. Um, and it totally depends. Every shoot's so different. I mean, I did a shoot on that Wild Alaska Live series for BBC this summer, and we were tracking black bears in the Alpine for five days. Um, and it was just me and one other guy. And we got dropped off by a helicopter, which was extremely nice since we didn't have to hike there with all of our gear. But we ended up hiking out with our gear. Um, and so I have a big, giant expedition pack that can hold an area mirror and a 600 millimeter lens on it inside of this backpack and so that and then i hand carry a tripod and sometimes like that's all that i have uh, maybe another wide angle lens for coverage but um it really depends on the shoot but i would say as a priority like i really try to stay um thin and it's getting harder because productions are asking more and more for drone and gimbal and slider and jib and they want everything you know to be a part of the package and if you really want to stay light that's just that's just not possible um yeah that's a lot of gear um in itself just jibs jibs and the weights <laughs> that you have to carry i mean that that's that's a lot of stuff and then of course you know it's easy to forget when we talk about this stuff about the batteries and the media when you're uh, remote locations and you're having to charge um, you know, charging is pretty slow, even, you know, with the incredible technology we have with these solar panels these days. I'm assuming that's what you do. Do you use solar to, to charge when you're out there? To be honest, on the stuff that I've done remote, I do not even, because I've done so much work specifically in Alaska, and then um, the sun is just too inconsistent and the rain is too uh, consistent <laughs> right. to, um, that I've just gone the route of like, if we're going to be remote for X days, typically in Alaska, when I've been remote, it's been I've had boat access. And so even if I don't have the capacity to charge on the boat, I just bring so many batteries um, that it's just I mean, it is ridiculous. But, um, you know, I just rent an additional 15 or 20 batteries, you know, and just and ration. Um, and but it depends are, on the these are V-Lock. Yeah. They're like a, a V-Lock. Yeah, for the Amira. You know, again, when I was shooting on the C300, it was easier because the battery life was longer and those were a lot smaller. And so in the meaning of wild, it actually wasn't as hard. You know, if I had 10 or 12 
Canon batteries. I mean, I could go probably a week. Um, you know, it just depends on what you're shooting too. If you're following people and you're filming follow docs style coverage, you're going to burn batteries a lot. If you're doing wildlife stuff, sometimes you're just waiting and trying to get in position and, and move around. And so, um, it really depends on what, what you're shooting, but, um, the solar panel stuff is hard because again, you need the, you need the sunlight consistency and you need to be in places where, um, that's possible. And so much of where I've worked has been in forests and in rainy environments where it's just really not even possible. But yeah, typically if I was doing a desert shoot, I would no doubt I would do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that, that's something worth thinking about, isn't it? Because I think, you know, a lot of us that feel that when we're going to remote locations, solar is the way to go. You've got to charge them somehow out in the field. But of course, as you say, if it's overcast all the time, that's not going to help you. So so really, you're, you're almost doubling your gear. Once you fill a case full of V-Lock batteries, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight. It is a lot of weight, yeah. And again, it depends what you're doing. Um, you know, I would never tell someone if you're doing a solo shoot and you're just going remote for two weeks and you don't have access to a large amount of support to like take an Amira or a big power hungry camera, you know, I would take the most battery efficient camera you could do. Um, but media is the other thing you mentioned. And that's honestly maybe even more challenging nowadays because almost every client now wants 4k or even higher to future proof. And for example, we did a production last summer where we were shooting 4k 60 P for almost the entire thing in the max bit rec, you know, bit rate codec on the Amira. Mm -hmm. And we, ingested something like 60 terabytes in the field. Wow. Um, and that like, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is that is a full time job. If you put in a 10 hour day in the field, you come home, that's another six yeah. hours of offload. And, you know, you don't just want to do one backup, you know, we typically do three. And so it's, it's, um, you're talking a lot of money in hard drives. You're talking a lot of time, you know, and so it's, it's definitely things to consider. And, you know, as a small team, we've been able to do it and we're, we really work hard to be able to pull that off. But, um, as you know, anytime you're doing a project, you go in story first and then you start adding all these things onto it. Okay. Well, how can I travel? How does that limit my storytelling you know, capabilities? I can only shoot X amount of media. You know, how, how does that limit what I can shoot in a day? And so you start to like understand the challenges of doing really remote stuff pretty quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and also budgeting. If you're putting a budget together, if it's something where you're not being hired on a day rate to go out and, and work, you know, you, you've really got to think about those things because it does almost double your budget with time when you're talking about um, delivering in 4K or, or you know, a higher res. Um, and I think so much of the time, people, uh, when they're getting into the industry and they're looking at starting out and working maybe commercially even, um, they don't think about, you know, if a client isn't really in the need of having 4K footage, but they want to supply it, that it's just going to turn the workflow, you know, into a much longer process. And that's um, that's worth thinking about in the onset. And in the field, it's one thing, but then you get into post and it's even more intensive. You know, if you're shooting these extremely, you know, it's honestly better to shoot on the Amira in 4K than it is on a GH5 because, you know, the, the algorithms that they use to compress the smaller cameras are much harder on the computers than just ProRes, you know? And so it's, it's actually like, you know, if you shoot 4k on some of those, you know, on an A7S or a GH5, you're going to have to transcode all that footage. Then you're going to have to, that's a double backup or probably a 1.5 times hard drive space. 
now you get back and your 10 terabytes of footage is now 25 terabytes of footage, you know, and it, it just, it really can balloon quickly. And um, it's a challenge. I don't know. You know, I, I never wanted to be a post house um, and I edit a lot of my own stuff, but you know, we, we probably have a hundred terabytes at our home office, which is, is just crazy to me, given that like five years ago, I remember having a five terabyte drive and having like everything I'd ever shot in my life on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. It changes quickly. Well, and then, of course, aside from that, you've got to think about the future proofing with those drives because, you know, mechanical drives do have problems. I've had no end of hard drives fail on me. Um, and a lot of the time I've had the, you know, it's not the cheaper drives. It's been the higher end drives that I've paid, you know, a lot of money thinking they're going to last and they go down and, and suddenly you lose material. So it's it's then a case of backing up treble, backing up the backups, you know, um, and making sure that you've got that stuff for a long time to come. Absolutely. I mean, we had a project that we were editing uh, the Salmon Forest film and about midway through our raid went down um, and, you know, it was 20, 20 terabytes, um, six, you know, six drives in an array. And it was just like it was brutal. Um, but we had the backup and it took me two days to recover everything, get it all back. And it was fine, you know, but it's, uh, uh, it's <laughs> if you time. don't have the backup, it's, I mean, A, it's time and B, it's, it's, you know, it really inhibits, it, it's a, it's a thing that, you know, I, I always say this, but there's, there's so much, if you go into this industry as a DP or as a producer, um, and it, you're, you're, you decide to be niche or you want to work extremely freelance, um, you know, you'll, you have a craft that you work on and you have you know, there's specific things. If you go into this business and you say, I want to run a company um, and yeah, I want to manage post workflow and I want to pitch clients, there's just so much more. In fact, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, 70% of the work is not actually making the film. You know, it's, it's, it's coordinating with clients and doing deliverables and dealing with hard drives. And <laughs> it's, it's so many other things, which, you know, I, I'm excited and I like that part of it. Um, but it's definitely when you get into it, you don't, you don't expect all of that. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's the surprise after the, the passion, you know, you get out there with your camera and your film and then you come back and they say, you, you realize there's all these other things you have to think about to make it viable. And, um, and that's a very good point. We haven't really spoken much about that on the show um, in terms of the business aspect. And it's so, so um, valuable to, have to hear insights of how people uh, run their businesses, because at the end of the day, going out and using your camera is not uh, the the main bulk of the work when you are actually earning a living from it. Absolutely, um, yeah. It's, <laughs> and, it's a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot to know, isn't it? It's so let's um let's talk about the meaning of wild. Um, this was a show that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's the documentary that you wrote. Um, I believe you DP'd it, produced it, edited it, wrote it. Um, and I think you were saying that you were already up in Alaska working at that time. So my question was going to be, you know, how did you fund that? But it sounds like you were probably already working on these things at the same time. Is that right? So that, that project was unique. Um, I had the, the, the premise of that project was that we wanted to coordinate a project with the U.S. Forest Service, specifically the Tongass National Forest in Alaska, to help celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act. And at that, that centennial of the 50th anniversary was in 2014. And so that film, we, we basically started putting the ideas together for that film in 2012. We ended up getting 
the Forest Service buy-in as part of a cooperative agreement with the Sitka Conservation Society, who have done a lot of work for in Alaska. They were the organization I had been, you know, spending my summers with. Um, and so that, that project had a very unique funding structure. We had a little bit of money from the Forest Service. We had a little bit of money from the conservation organization. And then we did a crowdfunding campaign where we raised almost $50,000 um, through, you know, online donations to pull off that project. Wow. Um, and on top of that, we had a number of foundations involved as well. So, um, you know, we had an advantage in that situation that we were ramping up to this big moment. This, you know, the, you know, it was like the, the 50th anniversary, the 50th anniversary. Uh, and so we really wanted to celebrate. Um, we wanted to be the, the, the project that was going to be one of the highlights of that anniversary. And so, um, it took a while. I mean, it took, it took probably a year and a half to, to get the funding for that. And honestly, a lot of it even came in. Um, we did fundraising after we got out of the field. Um, but we were extremely fortunate that a lot of people came together, um, both friends and family, but also just an online community of people who wanted to support, you know, wilderness preservation and telling stories about wild places. Um, I mean, that, that's fantastic. How did you find those people? Were they people who were already part of a network with the organizations you were working with? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely cannot take credit by any means. You know, we had a number of organizations. We had the Sika Conservation Society. We had the Alaskan Wilderness League. Um, we had a number of private foundations and we had the Forest Service. And so, you know, through all of those people, plus our production team, which was basically at the time it was myself. Um, it was a buddy of mine, Justin DeShields, who was a National Geographic alum who helped me shoot some of the film. Um, a writing buddy of mine who, who helped me write some of the film, Matt Hill, um, another National Geographic alum. And he, um, so all of us had our little you know network of people. And then we had our, our music team. They also kind of reached out to their folks, but um, I couldn't tell you that there was like some sort of you know, amazingly specific campaign that we pulled off. Um, we didn't even go through um, like Indiegogo or any website. We built our own website. I had been building websites for a while. So I built my own website. We put a WordPress plugin for it and we put a mailing list together of all these people. And we tried to keep them posted the whole time we were in the field and tried to constantly, you know, cultivate their interest. And Honestly, like the average donation was like twenty-five or fifty dollars, um, but we got a couple big ones, and it was really nice because it really allowed us to build this community that we probably would have never been able to do um, outside of that. But you know, that fifty thousand was not really what made the film happen. It was really, you know, the funding from the Forest Service, this conservation organization, and their foundations that they work with, who allowed us to make the project happen. The crowdfunding campaign really helped us kind of solidify the PR and finish the product, which is is a very typical way that these productions work. And it's what I would honestly suggest that most people do um, if they decide to go that route, because, you know, there's one thing to be able to tell your audience, this film is happening. You could be a part of it or not. And we would really love if you're a part of it, it'll be even better than we ever could have dreamed then if you guys don't fund this, this whole project's going to collapse. You know? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, people like to know they're putting their money in something that is actually happening regardless of whether you make your, you know, your goal on the, on the fund, uh, on the crowdfunding um, website kind of thing. 
Exactly. And it, it was honestly a dream production. Like it was amazing to be able to have that time in the field. Um, we got to see so many incredible places. You know, now I've almost visited every wilderness area in Southeast Alaska. And it's it's just yeah, thinking back on that project. It's like, wow, that was a that was a lucky one. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it, it, it looks stunning. And um, we should say that it's actually available to rent on on Vimeo. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll talk about the, at the end where people can, can find that. Um, but it, it's stunning. And I wanted to ask you about one of the shots in there. Uh, there's a shot in the trailer where I believe it's you walking out of a tent on the beach. And it's you walking real time, but it looks like a time lapse on the sky. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's a layered shot. But how, how did you do that? Yeah. And so we, we did a couple of those while we were in the field. And uh Basically, you know, we tried to find a place where there was a distinct horizon line and we set up the camera and we rolled a slow motion shot for about 10 minutes of me walking out and looking. And then we rolled a time lapse, um, you know, basically right after that for about, you know, 20 minutes or something just to get some cloud movement. And um, the composite line is basically right at the water line there. Um, with, you know, there's some some icebergs in the shot as well, but it ended up working fantastically. I, I was amazed how well it worked. Yeah, it's, um, it's great. I mean, it's vis- <laughs> visually it draws you in instantly because if you even if you don't really realize straight away, you know something's off, you know, <laughs> and then it draws you in even more and you're like, oh, hang on a minute. Okay, is he walking super slow or is he? You know? Yeah, yeah it's, it's well done. You know, I think there's so many techniques that, if you look to Hollywood, you get better inspiration than looking at in our industry. You know, there's a very specific um, kind of trope or genre that is natural history filmmaking. And obviously the BBC has been, you know, most known for defining that. But um, there are so many techniques that Hollywood uses, uh, editing styles and visual, you know, styles um, and sound design and transitions that, uh, we often don't get to use in our industry, I think, mm-hmm. um, for better or worse. But it's like it's always fun on projects when you get to like try to try to work some of those in <laughs> and see if people resonate with them. So. Yeah, and and absolutely, there's so so many resources out there for filmmaking in general. I mean, one of the things we're doing here at Master Wildlife Filmmaking is specializing in the the niche of wildlife filmmaking, natural history filmmaking. But there's so many resources for how to use cameras, you know, learning different shot sequences, and, and as you say, effects, post-editing, uh, that kind of stuff. It's, um, it's a plethora, a plethora of stuff out there. So... That brings us on to a, a good point, actually. You do pretty much all of your own uh, production across the board. So pre-production, writing, uh, right through to filming, and then editing, color correction. Out of all of those things, which would be your your first kind of go-to uh, thing to do? You know, what are you most passionate about in the kind of uh, the whole role of production? I mean, I would say definitely, definitely the field time. Um, you know, I, I really enjoy development. And we constantly work to develop. But, you know, I mean, if you look at the landscape, like we're, you know, my wife and I work together, we're relatively young. I mean, we're only 28. And so, you know, our experience in doing the whole production process is compared to, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years is is, is tiny. But our goal when we came into it was we, we really wanted to do front end stuff. And we I, I do get hired as a DP freelance and I, I do work, I would say, 30 to 40 percent of my work is 
freelance director of photography work. And so when I get hired out, that's what I get hired as typically. Um, but we have definitely kind of committed to trying to do in front to end because it's really how you learn everything and how you can get to do the projects you want to do. Because if people don't know that you can complete projects, they're not going to hire you, you know, like that. So it's one thing to be an amazing DP or producer or writer, but, you know, we wanted to be able to do the whole thing. I, you know, I, I focus a lot of my visuals and I focus a lot of my, you know, my camera work. And so of all of those, um, that's probably the one that I, I'm, um, most progressed in of, of all the things in my career, um, as small as it is. But I think that, um, you know, I've, I, I love color correction. I actually, I, I get so fascinated and slash frustrated when I see bad color jobs. Um, um, and I'm extremely detail oriented and, you know, almost anal retentive about my visuals. And so I think that's something that, um, I definitely am drawn to. I'm trying to like really push myself, um, and the other stuff I'm really trying to work on my producing better. I'm trying to understand, you know, scene structure more. I'm trying to like understand how those things translate, but it, you know, it's, it's always, it's always challenging to do everything. And as we've grown, we've had to farm stuff out. You know, we, we don't do all of our posts anymore, um, typically. And, um, as much as I want to, there, there becomes a time where let's say I wrap up big production. I come back. Um, I have to make a financial decision if I get a call to go shoot something. Um, but I'm supposed to be editing it. You know, is there somebody who's a better editor that I could be working, you know, have working on that while I go shoot, which is what I'm, you know, probably better at and more focused on. But, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot in there. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, I think you covered that well. I mean, it's making those judgment calls for sure. Um, I know I, I do pretty much everything as well, but it's very interesting how, you know, color correction to me is the bane. Of, <laughs> you know, uh, shooting in log and then coming back and doing that first correction is fantastic. But then it's one of those things that just, uh, as you say, it's the, the frustrations that come out and, you you know, you can tinker forever trying to get it right. But um, I prefer to farm that stuff stuff out and uh, and stay behind the camera but um but you know it's so great to be able to do all of the the various different roles because i think one it it really helps you understand the full process and and then you know in a pinch you can turn your hand to move a project along if need be um and so that's so valuable but always it, it, go ahead. yeah no I, I think it's it's a it's a, it's a constant balance because like as a we work in a creative craft and like working in a creative craft, like I often would love to shadow people more, um, you know, and yet I'm at a place with my business where like, I'm not taking really AC work anymore. Um, I'm still doing quite a bit of second camera stuff on specific sh shows and series and working as a DP on bigger crews, which I love doing that because those are, those are the opportunities that I have during the year to watch people, you know, and, and it's like, you know, you should never stop doing that. And I, you know, it, when I'm doing my own productions, I'm so thankful because we're able to like make a living in a way that a lot of people in this industry are not making a living. Like, you know, we're, we're doing our own work, um, which there's a huge like pride point for that. And also just a lifestyle point for that. But on top of that, there's also that craft side where you want to be watching people. You want to be seeing how somebody thinks about a scene differently. And um, it's, it's always a balance. Like, you know, I would love to be able to like just shadow the best filmmakers in the world, you know, two weeks a year, just purely to, to be able to see their techniques and stuff. And um, I think, you know, to be able to continue to be 
to thrive in this industry, I, you just have to keep getting better. I don't know. Um, and doing your own productions can be great in the sense that you're learning all that, but it also is like, you know, it'll take you three times to, to like, um, make a mistake. Whereas, you know, somebody who has 30 or 40 years in the industry ahead of you could just say, Oh no, do it like this. <laughs> right. That's right. Well, as, as we said earlier, you never stop learning and, and that's a good thing. I think it, it shows, you know, your passion comes out there when you're willing to keep trying to learn new methods of doing something. And of course, by making mistakes, that's one of the best ways we learn. But if you can watch someone else make mistakes and learn from it, that's even better. Uh, that's great. So um, now you do a lot of commercial work as well. And, and uh, it looks like slightly less of the commercial work. And I'm assuming kind of subsidizing the natural history work with that. Is that is that what you're doing with that? Yeah, I mean, and, and it, it's typically been interspersed and random. You know, we we I, I shoot on a number of TV shows uh, here in Denver. Um, I've shot on HGTV shows, on Travel Channel shows. I've shot on, um, you know, adventure shows in Alaska. And um, those are all like in that kind of reality follow doc space. Um, last spring, I had the awesome opportunity to work with Eric Cochran at Tykuli Productions and shoot um, a number of baseball oriented shows and so we we shot a pilot um about the about the astros farm system and then you know we spent the entirety of spring training with the angels shooting basically commercial work for them um which was refreshing and amazing to do you know just in the sense that it's just so different um and so you know i actually would like to get I don't think I'll ever want to be like, I only do X. Um, I think I, I will always want to be getting the taste of different types of work so that I keep a stronger grasp on the styles and approaches that people have to take for different forms of storytelling. And I think that, um, you know, we've been fortunate the last two or three years, we've had some big, big projects that have been natural history, science oriented, that those have taken up most of our time. But, um, I wouldn't doubt, you know, if I jump back into commercial work just to to get more of an edge on that. But it's it's very different, you know. It's just different to drive in with a crew and park your car at the location and you know have access to lighting and right. all those things. Have have control over a set and people. And it's like yeah. Well, um, and, and like you were saying earlier, I think it's so good to learn from that. Like you were saying, you know, looking to Hollywood to get an idea of, you know, different ways to shoot. And it's, I do the same thing. I do a lot of news shooting for Vice and um, various different other news channels. And, and it's so different because you do have the ability to put lights up and to take time and mic people and, you know, in a controlled environment, which in the field, a lot of the time, it's just not like that. But it, it helps you, I think, perfect some of those areas when it's more controlled. So it's more useful to you when you're out in the field. Absolutely. And I mean, interviewing is like one of those skills that no matter what, you know, you're doing. And yeah, a lot of people, obviously, who listen to this podcast that, you know, may not be something that they're into. But um, if you do any doc style work, it's like there's probably no greater like skill than learning how to talk to people and get them comfortable. And you you know this better than anyone probably, but it is a, you know, it is an art form of its own and being able to work in people, you know, with different people in different environments and in high stress environments and short time environments and be able to get, um, try to get what you need out of them and have them say it in their way and be comfortable is like, you know, that's, 
a skill that nobody tells you about. <laughs> I think when you get into filmmaking. Yeah, it's an art form in itself. And uh, I've worked with some fantastic producers who do it exceptionally well. I've worked with other producers who have no idea and they come away without, <laughs> you know, getting what they wanted from the person. And it's very much a case. I mean, first of all, sitting down with a person and talking to them and getting them relaxed because there's nothing worse than everyone being quiet in the room and waiting for the red light to go on the front of the camera and that person's, you know, sweating bullets waiting to be interviewed um one you've got to make them relaxed and two as you say you've got to pose your questions in a way that you're going to get the answers you need to tell your story um that is and, a, and wildlife skill. you know may actually not be that different either because like you know what what we're talking about with people is prep you know prep time and it's knowing their story so that you can help help navigate them you know, through their own narrative, um, in a way that can bring that story to an audience. But, you know, with, with wildlife, it's like you, you've got to know these behaviors of these animals ahead of time. You've got to be able to see and have an idea of what they're going to do to anticipate, to be able to get the shot that does tell the story of what they do. You know, um, it's, if, if they always fly off left and you think they're going to fly right, you're going to miss a shot or, you know, if they, it's, it's all those things, but you know, that's another thing that we haven't really talked about, but it's like, prep for these shoots is like so much you know it may, it may even be as important or more important than the shooting itself because if you don't if you don't know where the animals are you don't know who you're going to shoot or what you're going to shoot and um you know you want to go in with the arsenal of material that you're ready to that you can then go with the flow when when stuff doesn't go right absolutely and, and that's so so important um you know, learning behaviors of animals. Now, of course, we can't know the behavior of every species that we're heading out to film, but, um, you know, tell us about what, what kind of prep do you do? If you're heading out to, say, film a, a, a monkey in a jungle and you've never come across that species before, what, what's your kind of, uh, your, your best way to, to pull the resources together you need for that? I mean, uh, my methodology when I do pre-production is... I just, I spend a lot of time on the phone with people. Um, and I really try to talk to the experts before I go out. Um, there is an advantage of just having the time to observe an animal because you're going to understand something that maybe even a scientist isn't going to communicate to you. So there's just an invaluable part of that. But often before you go out, like, you know, A, if there's any books on animals, I just try to read them. I just I go everything from Wikipedia to the most intense, you know, articles about um about a specific species, you know, the animal I probably film most is bears and it's, you know, at this point, it's amazing how much more I can anticipate them than I could five years ago. <laughs> um, and a lot of that has been learning in the field, but so much of it has been talking to bear biologists and asking them very specific questions, you know, and, and you have to know the question to ask, but you know, like, if a salmon is doing X, like what will a bear likely do if it's in the river waiting, you know, it, like, like how, what are all the different ways that a bear can fish? Like, well, there's lunging. Sometimes they sit on all fours in the river and then they randomly snatch one. You know, sometimes, um, they pick one up and they go in the forest. Sometimes they just burst out of nowhere, you know, um, sometimes they just eat sedges. <laughs> um, and so I think there's that element. Then there's also just the safety element of like, is that bear stressed because of me? <laughs> is it is it making that weird face at me slash its hair going up because of me? Or is it is there another bear in the area that I'm not aware of? Behind like, you. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, we I've I've had a I've had a bear charge at me um, that we thought was charging at me, but it was running away from another bear. 
you know, and we were less of a threat than the other bear was. And so it's, um, you know, with any animal, the first thing you really want to get a good grasp of is kind of like what time of day are they active? What are they feeding on? Let's find out where those things that they're feeding on, you know, are, is there any current sign of those animals? You know, is there, do we do, do we know of a den? Do we know of scat? Do we know of seeds that are on the ground of a monkey that we could go to that tree then? And maybe they'll come by there, you know, like it's, you're basically playing detective, but you want all that information ahead of time. Um, and I'll put together basically like a, like a physical document for myself. That's like a brief of all this information. And I go into the field with that and that way, um, I have an idea of like, you know, what's going to go on. But the biggest thing I have to say is just talking to the experts, you know, the people who've been there because, um, you know, don't, don't ever be stubborn and don't call the people who know best because, right. um, well, and yeah. I, I think that, you know, the, the great thing about biologists is they love talking about their work as well. And so they're in a position where if you call them and you're interested and they're, they're interested in what you're doing, it sparks up a conversation that they're happy to have. Uh, and, you know, be, be safety in the field, safety around these animals, knowing how they're going to behave. It's, it's so important. As you say, more important than the filming. Uh, the filming, if you head out with a camera with absolutely no idea, um, then that's where, you know, it pretty much all goes wrong. And you don't don't get the behavior you you, you need so um, and you really have to be specific said. when you're when you're talking to biologists and and also just like you know like uh, i've done so much work in alaska and even i did this project in panama and sometimes for example like let's say there's a unique behavior that happens a courting behavior or some sort of unique call that happens like you can talk to someone that oh yeah I, i've definitely seen i see it all the time and you'll get a say a statement like that you know or a um yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's a pretty common, pretty easy to see. I think if you, you know, then okay, I think if you go here, you, you probably see it. And then you have to be specific with them. How many times in your life have you seen this? Right. You know, how how many times? And describe to me exactly what it was like when you were there. What time of day was it? You know, what was the weather? You know, and the more specific you can be, quickly you you often will find that these things that people have seen before are not very common. You know, I mean. Animals typically do nothing most of the time, you know, I mean, they sit around and they relax. Sometimes they feed, but, you know, most animals are, are fairly chill all the time. The stuff that we get to see on TV is the most spectacular thing that they do in their life, you right. know? And so it's like, um, you know, it, that's probably a, one of the hardest things is to kind of weed through the different information that you're getting and get to that thing that's like, okay, I actually think I have a tangible chance at this, or I don't have a tangible chance at this because, um, you know, if you don't have the time in the field to put in and you only have a couple days, the likelihood of you getting something absolutely spectacular is pretty low. Um, and that's why you see that crews spend months in the field. But if you do your research right, um, you know, and you're there during the, the exact time of year at the exact, you know, lunar cycle on the exact river on the, on the whatever, you know, maybe it's not that hard. Um, but if you don't have that information, um, it, it can be challenging. We, we saw glass frogs lay eggs on this edge of this leaf, which they only do during a specific rainy season, you know, on a day where it's been raining on a specific type of leaf on a water level, that's a specific type. And only this researcher knew that. And because he knew that we immediately got there and got it. But had we just been roaming around, I mean, we, it would have been impossible. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have even seen them, you know, and they, they were all around us, but, um, it's, it's just a good example of like, 
you've really got to put in the time for that. No, it's a great example. And I think it's fantastic to hear someone of your caliber explaining that post-production is so important because I think we're, you know, as passionate camera people, we're all too eager just to rush out there and start filming. And as you say, without the prior um, production, pre-production in place, then a lot of time it can be futile. So um, in terms of any other advice that you might have for people trying to break into the industry, um, I think, you know, so much of the time um, people are looking to, you know, we've got lots of passionate people out there with cameras. They want to get out. They want to find stories, find animals to film. They also want to, you know, kind of learn how to get uh, attract the networks and get work in this industry. If you had to kind of roll that all into one. You know, no, no pressure. <laughs> but if you had to kind of give some, give a viable tip to people to say, you know, there, there is a way to do this, what would that be? Networking is everything. Um, if you're young, you've got to, you've got to just try to get on productions, whether you're a PA, you know, don't, don't just assume you're going to get hired from BBC or National Geographic as a cameraman. You know, it's probably not going to happen, but you can get hired on productions as a production assistant, you know, and that's probably the most viable way to get in the network. Um, you know, I only worked for National Geographic full time for six weeks. Um, but having that on my resume has allowed me to like, A, have this incredible network of people that you and I both know and, and uh, are just awesome. But um, it's also just allowed me to get my foot in the door. And then as I've done my own work, continue those relationships. Um, but it really is networking. you got to be positive in the field. You got to be nice in the field. You got to be helpful in the field. <laughs> That's the if, if you do get on a job, those are the biggest things you have to be. You know, yeah. no one's gonna no one's gonna say I expect you to get the 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 best shot in the world. You know, on, on a as your first gig as a PA or an AC or even a second camera. But you know, if you're the guy who's or the girl who's most helpful and is positive and is eager and hungry and and just wants to make it happen, you know, people people see that and. As much as a lot of people in this industry are like that, it is rare outside of this industry to see that because um, it, the situations we find ourselves in are hard. You know, it's raining, it's cold, they're long days, you're staying up all night, you know. And when you're that person who's fun to be with, it makes a big difference. Absolutely. Um, and then the last thing I would say is like for working on your reel or working on, you know, developing something, I would say like look to the experts you know, and I haven't done this recently, but I'm, 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 I literally just started doing it again is doing breakdowns of films, scene by scene, shot by shot. You know, you don't need to, everybody wants to just go out and shoot and think that they're going to be, you know, an auteur and they're going to be, you know, the next Hitchcock, but like, you know, you have to know the techniques that people are using. And if you look at your favorite sequence in planet earth or, you know, in untamed Americas or whatever it is, break it down every single shot under and get an understanding of like, wow, that's what a sequence looks like. And then go out in the field. And if you're shooting a squirrel or a raccoon or a bird, think about, all right, if I wanted to make a sequence that was like that, you know, with the animals that are around me, like, and you're able to pull that off, like people are going to see like, wow, you have a grasp of how to tell a little story. And that's the biggest thing, you know, we're storytellers. Like we're not just people who get pretty pictures. Like, and unfortunately, like sometimes you can go in the field and get pretty pictures and not get a story. Um, but that, there's a big difference in that. 
I think that's some of the most valuable advice there is, actually. That's, uh, that's really well said, Ben. Um, we are storytellers, and that has to come first and foremost. You say, I think it's too easy so much of the time. You say you watch these big blue chip series, and you see incredible images, and people put so much value on that without thinking of any of the other stuff that goes into it. And we've discussed a lot of that today, and it's um, so, so important. Um, at the end of the day, the, the, the great images are going to come with experience and and, and higher end gear uh, as you know you kind of work up to it so absolutely fantastic ben where can people find you online where where can they see your stuff and uh, and follow you so our website is pioneerstudios.org uh you can find us on instagram at, at pioneer studios um i think on on facebook as well but you know pioneerstudios.org is the best place um to kind of see our work and our portfolio and we try to keep that pretty updated so Excellent. Well, I'll put links to all of those on the episode webpage on masterwildlifefilmmaking.com. It's been a pleasure to have a chat with you this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time out. And um, uh, where, where are you off to next? What's, what's the, in the future for you guys? I don't know. We're developing another series about Alaska right now. And uh, we just got some work uh, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So we'll, we'll see. But uh, we're, we're actually... Uh, my wife and I are about to head on vacation for about 10 days. We've been in the field for 40 days, so uh, we're ready to, ready to chill. Fantastic. Well, have a, an absolutely awesome time wherever you go. And, um, and thanks again. We'll, we'll keep on uh, checking out the website to see where you're off to next. Thank I you, appreciate babe. it. It was awesome. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.